The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. you'd like. (laughs) I'll be glad to wait. (laughs) James chapter number two, as we come to the close of this series, I want to thank uh, Mike and Jude and Brian and Tom, who all uh, labored uh, with me in preaching uh, through James these past months. I also want to thank uh, Dave Earsine and Pastor Mike, who um, are still leading an adult Sunday school class on James, a few more weeks left in that class, and to all of you who uh, faithfully attended it, um, hey, Andrew. Good to see you. Ah, so what a blessing to have you here today. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, there you go. Um, and then uh, a number of you came to the Wednesday night study in James back in uh, September and into October. And it was a real encouragement to me uh, to see so many studying together uh, God's Word. And I want to. Thank you for that, for taking the time to do that. And if, uh, if, if you purchased uh, Dr. Mortier's commentary on James, thank you for making that investment. I hope you found it helpful and that you will use it, uh, continue to use it. And finally, if, um, you, if you read James each week, as we encourage you to do, I pray that the Spirit will help you build on that discipline um, because, of course, there are many other books you can read in the Bible. Not all of them fit together so nicely, like five chapters in James, but uh, it's okay. Um, just keep reading God's Word. And um, chapter 2, verse 1, uh, is uh, my topic for today. The Lord of glory is the King of glory. Uh, Brian preached a few weeks ago, and Tom preached last week. Sermons on subjects, topics, if you will, that I gave them out of James that I thought would be good to reinforce after we have completed the exposition. And so today, um, I want to talk about the Lord of glory, who is the King of glory. This is how James describes Jesus, my brethren, do not hold the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. The sermon will not be on the larger point that James is making about favoritism. I preached that sermon some months ago, and if you would like to re-listen to it, you can do that on the website, or I can send you the transcript if you prefer. But today's sermon is going to focus entirely on the word glorious, which is the way that James describes his older brother. It's not an easy word to grasp, to wrap our minds around. It's a tough word even for our vocabulary. 
when we say it, we're, we're not sure what we're saying. Uh, the word glory or glorious is kind of like a kaleidoscope. You look into it, it's multifaceted. The light pours in and you see all kinds of colors and light and dimensions. And this is how the word glory, or as James describes his older brother Jesus as being glorious, this is how the word works. Uh, in the Hebrew, um, it carries a foundational meaning of something or someone whose presence is weighty. It's weighty, it's heavy. The idea is that the glorious thing should capture our attention because of its intrinsic value. That is the value that it has within itself. For those of us who you know live out here in the flats or maybe where you live, you get it also, but we have glorious sunsets. There are times when I just <laughs> I stand on my lawn and I just look at the sunset. All times of year, it's just glorious. Or maybe you might think about a glorious spring day or a glorious summer afternoon or an impressive person that you might have met. Yesterday, a lot of time was spent, in a sense, talking about Jim Weaver's life as being glorious, as it was an impressive life. And those who knew him talked about that. One of the things that happens when we encounter people or things that are weighty is that we change, that uh, transformation comes. And so when James identifies Jesus as the glorious one, it is his way of saying that Jesus possesses the quality of splendor that is particular to God himself. That Jesus possessed a splendor that is particular to God himself. And the reason that we say Jesus is worthy of all worship and all praise is not only because he did impressive things, which he did, right? But Jesus is worthy of all worship and praise because within Jesus, the glorious glory of God eternally exists. That's why Jesus is glorious. The glory veiled in his humanity is glory revealed when after the deepest, darkest moment in all of human history, Jesus, as prophesied, what does he do? He rises from the dead. A glorified physical body, the first fruit of what we anticipate as those in Christ will experience when we rise from the dead. Glory. The biblical understanding of glory, which forms the basis then for all hope, is found in the truth that God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, is glorious. And because we are created in his image, his glory is within us. Now think about that for just a moment. 
Because I'm not sure most Christians understand that God's glory resides within them. And just as God's glory resided within Jesus and was revealed in Jesus, cloaked in humanity and then fullness in his resurrected body, so we, having the Spirit of God filling us, have a glory coming out of us. That is, as with Jesus, cloaked in our humanity, but unlike Jesus, is often right diminished by uh, our sin or by you know, our, our human weaknesses. There are moments in all of our lives when we've kind of experienced the ability to go beyond the pale of our own inability and somebody might say, wow, you're a different person. And our response to that is not, yes, God's glory is being seen in me. Our response is usually something like, well, I had a good meal or I got a nap or something nice happened to me. I feel different, you know, met a new person or whatever it was. But if we think about the way this idea of glory works within Scripture, we know that God's glory resides within us. And because we have come into a relationship of peace with God through faith in Jesus, the glory within us then is being revealed through spirit-filled lives and one day will be revealed in all of its fullness when we too translated from this body into a glorified body, that glory will be revealed. We might then need to get reacquainted with each other, right? Yeah, I knew that was in you somewhere. There it is now in all of its fullness in the resurrected life. Like we'll all just be what God intended for us to be. What, what incredible hope. So, so based on the witness then of Holy Scripture, the church proclaims that it is not possible for anyone or anything to possess glory independent of God or to be more glorious than God. The glorious sunsets, the glory of a, of a warm spring day or a soft summer afternoon is a glory that extends out of the glory of God. The glory that is revealed in us through spirit-filled lives is wholly dependent on the glory of God residing within us. And there is never a time, nor will there be a time when we will outdistance or outpace God's glory in this life or in the next. And when James thought about his older brother Jesus, and he wanted to identify him and describe him for the church, he calls him our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that will capture your thinking and help, help you kind of grasp then the wonder of the, the Christian life. But there are implications for this. This just isn't, you know, a little exercise and abstract theology and we can all go away saying, oh, well, that, that was nice kind of for Pastor Ken to do that. There are actually implications of what it means for James to identify Jesus as the glorious one. And those implications kind of are inherent within the letter. One, 
is that James is reinforcing for his readers who are primarily Jewish readers. You remember in chapter 1, this is who he's writing to. Ethnic Jews, now who are in Christ, dispersed, you know, due to suffering and persecution. And so James is reinforcing within his Jewish readers, kind of within their hearts and minds, that um, they need to think about God's glory not only in a very Jewish way, but now that Jesus is God's glory revealed. They, they, they no longer are waiting for the temple. They are no longer waiting for Messiah. They're no longer waiting for the restoration of national Israel, someone to sit on David's throne. The glory of Israel, as described in Daniel, is now revealed in Jesus Christ. And James wants his Jewish readers to pick up on that signpost and not to be discouraged or frustrated in their life of suffering and uh, displacement. But there's a second implication inherent within the letter, and that is when James describes Jesus as the glorious one, he does so at the risk of being arrested by Rome for subversion, for sedition. Because, of course, no one was to be more glorious than Caesar. And so it was an act of rebellion to state that there was someone more glorious than Caesar. Now, <clears throat> the church, the church, and I think sometimes we miss the mark here and we struggle. We can't be dismissive of the Jewish perspective of glory because it is a biblical one derived out of our understanding of the Old Testament. James is writing with an understanding that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And where we learn about glory the most is, right, from the Old Testament, right? The glorious glory of God filling the tabernacle or on Mount Sinai or in Solomon's temple or in the second temple. And if you read the Psalms, you get the idea that God's glory is going to be extended through all the earth through a people who are made glorious by God. So we can't really be, <coughs> excuse me, dismissive of this because the law, the Psalms, and the prophets all foresaw that it would be through faithful Israel that God's glory then would extend to all of the earth. That promise contained in the Old Testament fulfilled by Jesus who is the only son, or I should say the only faithful son of Abraham. He is also the heir to the throne of David. And when he came into the world, he did so. Again, veiled in the cloak of humanity, but then in his life he gives complete fidelity to the God of Israel, obeying all of its commands, loving God, loving neighbor. And thus, James would say, along with the other apostles with the church, that Jesus, the crucified risen king, is the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel's salvation. And the hope of Israel's salvation becomes our hope as well. The glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And the hope that we now share with the law and the Psalms and the prophets 
is that through Jesus, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And again, this is not a, a kind of an exercise in abstract theology. Just think how encouraging it must have been for the first readers to be reminded that all of their hope that they had as, as Jews growing up within the midst of an occupied world by Rome, all of those promises have now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And although they were dispersed by an earthly power, a power that thought itself to be more glorious, they could see beyond the lesser glory of Rome and into the glory of God and find encouragement and find hope, just as we can do today as well. But then think about how burdensome it must have been for them. To look at their own people, people who were still striving to keep the law and find a righteousness that came through the law and how heavy their hearts must have been to see their fellow Jews living with a misdirected hope because they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps Paul's reflection uh, in uh, Romans 10 would be a good way to kind of frame the way Jewish Christians might have thought when Paul said that he has great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart because his kinsmen continue to seek a righteousness based on the law and not on faith. And do we not share that same burden with our loved ones, with our region, with our nation, which at one time was a nation that recognized the glory of God? Or our region where churches would be full and active and growing in worship of God and maybe children or relatives and friends and workmates who are living for lesser glories. Do we not share that same burden? And I would say to the church, never lose that burden. That is a really good burden to bear. To take that burden like Paul did and set it before God and say, I have heaviness. I have continued sorrow in my heart when I see my own kinsmen seeking a righteousness based on the law and not on faith. But along with the encouragements and along with the discouragements, there is still the danger that those in Christ lived with when they said that someone other than Caesar was glorious. After all, it was Caesar's inscription that was on the currency. It was Caesar Augustus who was deified and subsequent Caesars after him thought themselves to be gods. It was Caesar's army that kept the peace, the Pax Romana that we talked about a number of Wednesday nights ago. It was Caesar's empire that provided so benevolently for all of its citizens. On one hand, you have the Jews uh, rejecting J Jesus with a misdirected hope, but then you have all of those who put their full faith in Rome 
having a misguided allegiance. And this is our tension today as well, where we live, right? A misdirected hope and a misguided allegiance. We pull this forward, we drop this in our laps, and we would say that not only did the Jews miss the mark, not only did Rome miss the mark, but so did subsequent kings and kingdoms, along with religions and religious leaders. They all chose to follow after the lesser glories. This too is the church in real life, is it not? Is the church in real life not a church that exists within that tension? In the gap, right? Seeking God's glory, praying that the Spirit would reveal the glory of God within us more fully, we look at a world filled with religion that has a misdirected hope, filled with people seeking power, wealth, or enjoyment, whatever it might be, have a misguided allegiance. And we say, well, this is why James wrote his letter to the church. This is why this letter is so relevant for us today and Christians wherever they may be found because as we go about life, we can be drawn kind of so easily into the mass of humanity that's just kind of muddling around, worshiping the lesser glories. Not looking at a beautiful sunset and saying, to God be the glory. Not looking at the, the wonder and the beauty of God's creation or people who are made in the image of God and giving God the glory, not receiving the gifts that he brings to us and say, thank you, oh God, for the gifts that you bring. But just in an exhausting pursuit, people around us, panting after the lesser glories, the trap of misguided allegiance and misplaced hope. But you know, for the church, we, we praise God that We've been given the Spirit who lovingly and graciously holds out before us the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit says, hey, come and worship Him. You, know, you don't have to muddle around with the lesser glories. Here's the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. His glory in you. And now, O oh Spirit of God, work so that that glory comes out of us. And that we share it one with another, and we, we uh, share it with those who need to hear that message. But what have we learned from James? That often, this encounter with the glorious Lord Jesus Christ comes in various circumstances that are not all that favorable, right? What has James told us? The Christian experience is filled with trials. It's filled with pain. It's filled with suffering. It's filled with hardship. This is the church in real life. Not a Teflon-coated kind of religiosity that goes around, you know, here we are, the church. No, it's people right like this in this room with suffering and hardship and disappointment and joy and hope and relationships that are good, relationships that are bad, and all of those things. James says that the glorious Lord Jesus Christ is part of. And this is our experience. 
we fight against the various wrong desires. I mean, one of the hardest phrases in James to read is that when, when we pray, often we pray amiss. I love that King James word. We pray amiss. We pray wrongly. We pray with wrong desires. I'm constantly saying, God, if I'm going to pray, and I want to pray, at least help me to know that I have right desires when I pray. But it's like a minefield sometimes, right? Is that me or is that the Spirit? I don't know. I'm just saying the words, you know? But, but this, is, this is what we do. We encounter the glorious Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of doubt and confusion and fighting against sin and failing to fight against sin and uh, words that go astray. We kill people with our words and sometimes, you know, we give life with our words and we have suffering and we have hardship and we look at the world and we say, how long, O Lord? We quote the psalm that we read this morning and we think about it. Okay, God, where's the answer? How's this all going to work out? And we take these things and we hold them, as it were, in our hands. Our suffering, other suffering, the suffering of the world. And we say, God, this has got to be yours. This has got to be yours. And we, we follow the counsel in James 5, right? And we bear burdens and we, and, and, and we pray and we hold these things. We believe that God in prayer will help us and we encounter Jesus in prayer and we have the spirit groaning on our behalf and we listen to the words of Jesus say you know when you do it to the least of these you've done it to me and when you withhold from the least of these you've withheld from me and this is the church in real life we struggle to not give in to misdirected hope. And we battle against not giving into a misguided allegiance. And we look to Jesus because he's the one who walked the path of suffering for us. He's the one that held it all in his hands and on his body. Unlike Jonah, right? Jesus doesn't hop a ship to Tarshish to escape his calling. Instead, you know... What Jesus did, of course, every day, he bore the weight, the day-to-day, moment-to-moment choice of obedience. And perhaps that's the most weighty thing of all, is the day-to-day, the moment-to-moment choice to obey. And as he did that, he then looked out at the suffering of the world And he faced it, and he held it, and he takes the cup of suffering and all of its meaning, and he he sweats drops of blood on the night he was betrayed, and yet he, he sets his face like a flint, and he proves himself to be the obedient son. And there, at the God-forsakenness of the cross, the glorious one shoulders the weight of the world's suffering on his body, your sin, my sin, the world's sin. And as he is crucified, he is crucified in accordance with the scriptures. And he is taken down from his cross of suffering. He is buried. He he is uh, then on the third day, what? (laughs) He rises from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. 
And the declaration of the church apostolic is that the victory now secured by Jesus, witnessed by the blessed women who come to the grave and they hear the angels say, hey, he's risen, he's not here, come see the place where he laid and at the grave... The- the, the tomb is empty, and they go out and they proclaim the message, and the message goes out and is proclaimed through centuries. So when we baptize, we baptize buried in the likeness of Christ's death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. We grab this table, we hold hold of it, and we say, oh Lord, it is here. We remember your death, your sacrifice for us. And then what do we do each Easter? We, you know, on Easter, I, listen, I'm already looking ahead, and Easter's like in March this year. I don't like Easter in March. I love Easter, just not in March, but that's the way it is. Um, and what, what are we going to say on that cold March morning? We're going to say he is risen. Hallelujah. He's risen. Let us be zealous to proclaim it. Because it does not only have past implications, it has future implications. Because the promise is that the glorious one is coming again. And just as the power of imperial Rome and all of its lesser glories crumbled under the weight of God's glory, the lesser glories will crumble as well. It will be as the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. I consider... That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. This is the church in real life. However glorious the sunsets are, Looking out across the flats, when the glory that is within us is fully revealed, the glory of creation will fully be revealed, and I will stand on that lawn looking at a sunset that is more glorious than I could ever have imagined. I will see in you, and you will see in me. Not just glimpses of glory, you know, because we had a nap or had a good meal because now the veil removed and the glorious glory of God shining forth. How should we respond? Faith. This too is one of James' great themes. Faith is the response. Listening to the Spirit lead us. Listen carefully as the Spirit tells us that you can't just believe that God exists. You know, to believe that God exists only qualifies you to be a demon. That's what James says. There is a significant difference in saying that you believe in God and that you believe God. And the church is called to speak eternal things and to say to its members, believe God. Don't just believe in God, but believe God. To pray that the Spirit will help us to believe God, to believe what God has said and what 
God has done through Jesus. And that faith then frees us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And then putting that faith in action is the way we love God and we love our neighbors because that is how Jesus loved God and loved his neighbors. Implications. Not abstract theology. So we close the sermon in this series where we began back in August when Mike preached, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that the one who has turned a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So I ask this question. What might God do in a congregation that is being so fully changed by the gospel that through our love for God and love for our neighbor, the power of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ brings back those strained from the truth. Those who have a misplaced hope and a misguided allegiance. What might God do in us to turn sinners and save souls from death? Now that's, that's a vision for the church in real life. And one that I pray God will bring in fullness to our ministry here at Durkee Town and, and at St. James. Amen. Father, we thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeetown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeetown, please visit our website at www.durkeetown.org.